Welcome to Sunday School Class here at Faith Baptist Church. Before we get started, I just wanted to pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for you are God who is worthy to be praised. You are kind and gracious and love. Um, and there is no God besides you. Lord, we thank you for providing yourself for your people that we may be gathered by your name. Lord, um, we thank you for the ability to uh, continue to give ourselves to the preached word and the teaching of your word. Um, we pray for your grace and protection um, of the saints at FBC uh, and uh, the church abroad. Lord, um, we pray that you will continue to uh, provide for us ways and wisdom as we navigate this unique season uh, in, our, in our country um, and really in, in the world. And uh, we just pray that you would bless uh, the teaching of your word uh, and uh, pray that you would um, continue to use it, Lord, to further sanctify your children. Um, and may you be pleased to um, form us more into the image of your beloved son for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, welcome to class 12 as we are... Uh, thinking Together Through Living as a Church. So this is a resource provided to us by Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Um, and as we're working through this resource, we have sort of been um, moving through it. And now we come to the end of or towards the end of this Sunday School series. And we'll be thinking about corporate worship, the topic of corporate worship. One of the beautiful aspects of God's work in saving his church is that he calls all kinds of people into fellowship together. People from formal backgrounds and traditional backgrounds and people with a more casual bent maybe. People who grew up listening to Bach or Brazilian Samba or the Beatles or Biggie. Um, all of them united into Christ Church. Now, at the same time, we recognize that this can make for some challenges when we gather together to worship corporately. So uh, the question is, uh, how does corporate worship affect our unity? It's not only today that worship has the potential to be divisive. Even in Jesus' day, when Jesus met with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, she invited him into this sort of debate on worship. Should God's people worship in Jerusalem or at the Twin Mountains, uh, Gerizim and Elba in Samaria? So Jesus responds by teaching her about what worship is. He says, God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth in John 4, 23 to 24. So what's the goal in this specific class. We can't talk about everything or tackle every aspect of this idea of worship in 45 minutes. But as we approach the end of this course seminar on life together as a church, um, it's important for us to think about this topic of worship and its relation to our unity. So we should consider how we can help each other towards this ultimate goal of worshiping God. Now, in many ways, God-glorifying worship is one of the sweetest and most valuable fruits of the unity we've been talking about. At the same time, 
true worship will naturally foster unity. So we'll start by defining worship and corporate worship. And then we'll look at four ways that corporate worship has a unique role to play in our life as a congregation. Okay. So first, a definition of worship. Worship is a rich concept in scripture. There's no one main Greek word that corresponds to our English word for worship, but there are a lot of different terms. So as we look through the New Testament in particular, it becomes clear that worship extends far beyond what goes on in a church on Sunday morning. Um, Of course, it does encompass that, but it's also more than that. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. To the Romans, he writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Romans 12, 1. Christ, the perfect lamb, is the one sufficient sacrifice for us. So the sacrifices we offer in the new covenant aren't burnt offerings like in the Old Testament, but submission of every aspect of our lives to the glory and praise of God. So then, how should we define worship? D.A. Carson has a paragraph-long definition of worship, um, but... New Testament scholar David Peterson has a helpful definition, and he said something like this. Worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. Again, he defines worship as engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in a way that he alone makes possible. That includes all of life worship. Our affections, our actions, our obedience, our relationships, and it includes corporate worship, our times of praising God and edifying one another together. So worship is God-centered. It's a proper response to the majesty of God's holy character and nature, a God who is worthy of our praise. Worship goes beyond simply knowing intellectually that what God is like, and uh, it, it actually takes delight in the perfection of his attributes. Worship is also Christ-centered. Our worship of God is only possible because of Christ's death and resurrection. Without Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we would not be able to enter God's presence. And therefore we cannot have hope for the image we will have or that we have of heaven in the Bible. We see this Christ-centered worship in Revelation 5. So God is sitting on the throne and he's holding a scroll that is sealed. Only the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the lamb, can open that scroll. Only he is worthy. And we read that he, Christ, stands in the very center of the throne, one with God himself. Revelation 5, 6. 
Christ is then praised as the one who was slain, who was worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. From that point on in the book of Revelation, worship is addressed to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So worship is God-centered, it's Christ-centered, but it's also spirit-empowered. Before he teaches us to sing to one another, to give thanks in our hearts to God, Paul calls us in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus teaches that the Spirit's ministry among us is one that glorifies Christ. In John 16.14, the Spirit, he's referring to here, will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So what is a biblical understanding of worship? Let me suggest three things in, in summary here. First, it is a proper response to God himself. Worship is something that is commanded of all, and it's a natural and right reaction to the glory of God. Second, worship encompasses our entire lives. It's not simply the singing of praise to God. It involves both adoration and action. Worship doesn't end with what we say, but includes also what we do. Third, worship is a delight in the beauty of God and of Christ. It's not merely a delight in the experience of worship. In our evangelical culture, worship more oftentimes refers to the emotions that we experience as we uh, maybe close our eyes and sing about God. And we can be more caught up in the experience than in the God who is supposed to be the fountain of that experience. We should instead focus our hearts and minds on God and Christ and our worship. So if worship has lost uh, <clears throat> it's uh, or has lots of passion rather, uh, but no genuine thought, if it sort of disengages the mind, then it's probably not true worship. The converse is also true. If worship is only thinking right things with no intent to stirred affections toward God, then it's false too. So it's both and. We don't um, engage uh, the mind and disengage the affections, and we don't simply engage our affections or the emotions in our affections, and at the same time, uh, disengage the mind. It should be both and. We are worshiping with um, our whole being, right? Let's um, jump down to uh, number three, or Roman numeral three. We want to give a definition of corporate worship. So that's some of what worship is and uh, worship is not. But what about corporate worship? The time when we gather together as a congregation publicly for the purpose of praising God. Based on what I've just described as worship, you might think that our church picnic constitutes corporate worship, right? We're doing things together for the glory of God, and we're doing them as a sort of congregation. Uh, 
But clearly there's something more to corporate worship than just that. Fortunately, God has given us guidance through scripture about what happens when a congregation gathers publicly for the purpose of praising God. In the New Testament, we see commands for the church to pray in Colossians 4, 2 to 4, and 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2. You see commands to read scripture publicly in 1 Timothy 4, 13, in Colossians 4, 15 and 16. To listen to preaching and teaching. You see that in Acts 2, 42 and 1 Timothy 4, 13. You see the baptizing of believers and Matthew 28, 19. And you see this sharing in the Lord's Supper. You see that in Acts 2, 42 as well in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. You see this uh, command to uh, encouraging us to encourage one another and praise God in our singing in Ephesians 5, 19 and Hebrews 13, 15. Uh, and you see the giving, the charitable, joyful giving of our finances in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 2. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 is clear. Every one of these things that we do together must be done for building up, it says, for the building up of the church. These are things that the New Testament instructs us to do when we gather either by command or by apostolic example. Now, what about other things? You might feel like going on a long hike in the mountains can be a great way to uh, excite your heart and affections toward praising God, which it should. We worship God um, as we even see what he has created. That's, that's good. But what if every week we decide as a church to gather and go hiking on the Lord's Day rather than to meet in our building? Would we be or Rather, we would be, if, if we did do that, we would be assembling together, as is commanded of us in Hebrews 10, 25. Uh, we would be worshiping God, which is good. But would that constitute corporate worship? It definitely wouldn't be a normal pattern of what the Bible lays out to define what a church does together in the unique time when we meet for worship. But would that be corporate worship? This brings us to an important theme in scripture that's worth talking about. God has defined how we should approach him corporately. Therefore, it's possible to offer wrong worship. God is infinite. He's all wise. He's omniscient. We are finite sinful, we're self-centered and uh, wanting our own glory. We can't know God unless he reveals himself to us. And we can't understand what worship will be pleasing to him unless he reveals that to us. And so the Bible is very clear on the essentials of how we should worship God, particularly when we worship him together in public. For example, in the second commandment, Exodus 20, verse 4, God prohibits worship through images. 
it's clear here that he alone regulates how he will be served. And the consequences of that principle become apparent when the people build and worship the golden calf. And it's probably intended to be a representation of God, but obviously it's not pleasing to the Lord. And then later, when Nadab and Abihu offer up what the Bible calls unauthorized fire or strange fire to the Lord um, as a type of devotion, uh, it was contrary to his command, right? And so God kills them. He strikes them dead. Let's take a look at Leviticus uh, chapter 9, 22 to 10, 3. So if you have your Bible with you or in front of you, turn to Leviticus chapter 9. I'm just going to read for us verses uh, 22 from 9.22 to 10.13. I'm sorry, 9.22 to 10.3. It says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now... Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So you see in this narrative uh, how seriously the Lord takes the worship of himself. Jesus, even in the New Testament, he rejects the worship of the Pharisees. Uh, quoting from Isaiah and Mark 7, 7, he says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So scripture is clear on the ways that we are to approach him when we gather publicly. The principle is uh, or has been referred to and is, is referred to as the regulative principle. The regulative principle of worship says that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. The regulative principle of worship is usually contrasted by what's called the normative principle. The normative principle is the idea that anything not expressly forbidden by scripture can be used in corporate worship. So 
Regulative, anything not commanded is forbidden. Normative, anything not forbidden is permitted. But God has regulated acceptable worship so that our worship won't be confused with other religions and false gods. He does this for our own good and our blessing as we rightly glorify him. And of course, he's God, so he knows what's best for us. Now, all of this to say, when we consider corporate worship, we must understand that the Bible doesn't leave us free to improvise, but it regulates the elements of worship and the content of our worship. Of course, the, the forms of those elements of worship may change over time. Uh, in one congregation, they may sing a cappella, and another, we may sing with a guitar or piano or an overhead projector. Uh, one other note, um, corporate worship is actually public worship. So it's a time for the entire church to gather together when outsiders are invited and welcome to learn about the true God. Uh, through their corporate worship, a congregation proclaims God to a watching world. When they gather together and worship together corporately, publicly, they proclaim the excellencies of Christ to each other and to a watching world. So to sum up, corporate worship is gathering publicly as a church to engage with God according to his instructions and in scripture. One key implication of this is that at the center of our corporate worship is the word of God. Why? Because God's word and understanding what he says is the highest point of engaging with God as he reveals himself to his people. Singing, which is actually what comes to mind when we think about corporate worship, is, of course, part of our worship and is helpful in focusing our thoughts um, and engaging our emotions, and it's glorifying to God. But God's word faithfully preached along with the reading of his word, the praying of his word, and baptism and communion is what creates the church gathering, right? God commands, God instructs, God determines what our corporate worship should look like. Okay? <clears throat> now let's jump down to Roman numeral four. Unity and corporate worship. Having defined corporate worship, let's move on to this topic of unity in corporate worship. And this question to be considered how do we maintain unity in corporate worship in spite of our diversity of preferences, right? We have different preferences in our music type. Um, many of us, if we were to sort of be a fly on the wall in our uh, cars, 
as we uh, drove to work or from work or ran our errands, you would probably hear a diversity of music from all of us listening to different genres of music. And it would be enjoyable, <laughs> but you would also see just this a very diverse uh, selection of music because people have different preferences. So how do we maintain unity in our corporate worship as we worship together again publicly despite our diversity of preferences. Philippians 2.2 tells us that as a church, we are to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Philippians 2. But we recognize that one of the things that brings glory to Christ is the church's witness, even in its diversity. The fact that different sinners from different backgrounds, predestined, elected, and gathered by God, choose to love each other because of the power of God at work in them is a miraculous thing. But with the diversity, it's completely natural that different people will find different types of corporate worship to be more or less emotionally and intellectually engaging. So how do we approach corporate worship when each one of us has our own preferences, likes and dislikes with regard to forms of corporate worship, like music or the style of the service? Well, continuing on in Philippians 2, we read, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I'm reading verse three and four in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So we are called to submit to each other for the sake of Christ, to love each other and serve each other in this way, even as we do it in so many other aspects of church life. It applies here as well. Now, the reason we're emphasizing this point is because so often today, we encounter this strange contradiction. Corporate worship is the one time when we are most self-consciously focusing our attention as a body on the glory of God. And yet, so often, Corporate worship is the aspect of the church's life that prompts the most selfishness, the most self-interest. And that shouldn't be the case. If we thought of corporate worship as something that involves just me and Jesus, then of course we'll be disappointed if it's not our preferred style. But we need to think of corporate worship as something that we do together as a family and love for each other and for God. So how do we learn to think this way? Because I would assume that most of us naturally come to corporate worship and our natural disposition or preference is... What do I want to hear? What do I like? What 
is going to uh, engage and stir me emotionally and we can bring our radio preferences as we run our errands into corporate worship and it can cause disunity. It can cause us to be very selfish. It can uh, turn our eyes and affections away from the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in worship to ourselves. So we become the one that determines how God should be worshiped. And we want to think through how to properly approach God and worship as his people gathered for his glory by his name or in his name. Chris Anderson said something really helpful. He said, whatever we believe about God will come out in our singing. The songs that churches sing in corporate worship are never neutral. They always reflect something of the theological health of the congregation. And there are Christians who would never tolerate unbiblical preaching who tolerate unbiblical singing. So how should we be thinking when we gather to worship? One thing that can help us is approaching Sunday morning with a sense of our desperate need and utter dependence upon God. So worship isn't fundamentally about me. It's about seeing and savoring God together with the community of faith. So let's not come hungry to have our personal preferences met, but hungry for a deeper connection to our church community and understanding of our triune God. So four thoughts that would help us to sort of work through this what this would look like in practice. First, sacrifice. Corporate worship is glorifying to God because we do it together. And this involves sacrifice, like so many other areas of our life as a church. Second, growth. We need to remember that in love, we can learn to use worship styles and traditions that at first might seem foreign and to grow in our appreciation for them. Third, being considerate. We should keep in mind the importance of not doing things that would distract others in the congregation from worshiping. So that involves everything from what we wear to how we talk about the songs with others. It means not making fun of songs in a way that would hinder others from using them to worship. It also means that those that select the music should be careful not to pick songs that are easy to make fun of. We've heard those songs before. Fourth, we want to consider honesty. It can only help our unity if we're honest about a couple things. For one, our church does have a particular culture and you can't escape that. So we worship in English. 
So many of our hymns are American or English. But we sing them because we see the theological agreement with the broader Orthodox, Protestant, and Reformed tradition. We've tried to prioritize simple accompaniment. So the sound of the people's voices is the most prominent thing. We value songs with good words from many different centuries. So much of our music feels dated to some, and I get that. But it's good to be honest about that. It's also good to honestly recognize that this means that some people are going to have a harder time than others adjusting to the way that we worship here. For some, it feels uncomfortable, like grandma's church. But for others, it feels like church on Mars. We love each other well if we're aware that some people may have to sacrifice their preferences more and we should listen to them as we deal with that and pray for them in that, All right? So we wanna be honest. Okay, let's transition to Roman numeral five, corporate worship as a platform for unity. <clears throat> so we've talked about how we can work toward unity in our corporate worship with the remainder of our time together, I'd like to share four ways that our corporate worship helps our unity and our witness. First, corporate worship displays our God-glorifying unity. <clears throat> First, corporate worship is an opportunity to display the unity that we have in Christ. Uh, it's wonderful when we can sit on our own in the morning and praise God in some facet of his character and our devotion time privately. That's good and healthy. But there's something special in gathering publicly and praising God together as we're commanded to do. As Peter reminds us, that's one of the reasons God has brought Jew and Gentile together into the church. Now he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. This is why Jesus is so insistent that we deal with these areas of disunity before we worship. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23 to 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. <clears throat> And Paul echoes this teaching when he talks about the Lord's Supper. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. So what does it mean to not recognize or discern the body of the Lord? Well, Paul has been talking about how the Corinthians celebrate the Lord's Supper in disunity. 
the body he refers to in 1 Corinthians 11 is the church. Unity must be present if we are to offer a pleasing sacrifice of praise to God. And when unity is present, corporate worship is a beautiful display of God's glory. So we should regularly, not just in preparation of the Lord's Supper, examine our relationships with each other as well as with God. That's, that's good for our hearts as we approach God in worship. Two, we help each other to worship. One of the greatest advantages we have as we worship together as a church is that we can help each other to grasp the glorious beauty of our God and help each other to express our response in joyful praise and thanksgiving. Corporate worship then provides this platform on which we actually serve one another. And this happens in the structure of worship services as we organize the music ministry to help us sing, as the pastors study hard and labor over the word to prepare a message of, uh, as we preach the word. It happens as our voices and expressions even encourage each other throughout the service. The author of Hebrews tells us to um, let us consider, give thought to, ponder how to stir one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24. Now, that absolutely includes helping each other to worship. <clears throat> now, aside from what I mentioned before, what are ways in which we can help each other worship God when we gather together as a congregation? How do we help each other to worship? And I want to sort of think through this practically with you. When you're in service, and there are people around you, in front of you, behind you. Um, what can we be thinking and doing to help each other potentially worship better? What are some considerations? Well, just a few things here, and I'll sort of go through these in quick bullet point fashion. But we can discuss the sermon, and we can talk about it in preparation for Sunday morning in our conversations in our homes uh, before the Lord's Day, um, on the phone with friends, we can be thinking through and talking about the text as we prepare to hear it preach the next Lord's Day. Another practical thing we can do is to sing loudly and joyfully. That's an encouragement to people. When they see you singing with joy and I believe you can even do that in the midst of seasons of affliction and it not be hypocritical or fake and phony um, as the word is, as the words of the song or the psalm or the hymn are penetrating your heart or informing your mind. I think people can still pick up on that and it's encouraging to them. We can regularly attend the Lord's Supper and take it seriously. So don't be distracted by your phones or just looking around or 
sort of just thumbing through, I don't know, a, a book you have with you or Facebook or whatever it is. Give your attention to the worship of the triune God during corporate worship. And specifically when it comes down to the Lord's Supper, that can be a time where people sort of tap out and, you know, it can become a time of just conversation, sort of quiet conversation, you know, in the back or, you know, between you and the person next to you. Give your thoughts to God, the crucified Savior, the Father who loves you and that love for you that is the cause of the sending of the Son and the Son who willingly and joyfully came to be surety for you um, and dying in your place. And the Holy Spirit who takes what Christ has done and applies it to you and takes your sinful life and gives it to Christ that he may be an atoning sacrifice. Give your thoughts to what's being said during the time of the Lord's Supper. Okay, I can beat that drum all day, but attend regularly with your mind and body to the Lord's Supper. Another point, we can discuss the sermon and the service as a whole after church, which we do in our flock groups. So attend the flock groups. That's an opportunity for you to be stirred and to stir one another. Next, we can express joy even in the midst of trial to each other during the service and our fellowship and greeting. If someone says, hey, how you doing? If you had a terrible week, <laughs> don't lie. Don't say I'm good. You know, be honest and say, it's been a tough week, but maybe we can catch up after service and we can talk about it. Um, that puts into their minds that they could pray for you during the service, that they can be listening um, and maybe pick up on things that they could uh, encourage you with after the service. So we want to be honest there. and We want to express our joy um, even in the midst of trial. Okay. We want to welcome those around us who are unfamiliar. Uh, you see a face you don't know, go to them, you know, make, be intentional, uh, introduce yourself, say hi, welcome them to the service. Uh, that's, that's encouraging for people. And that's actually the one thing I hear a lot from visitors who come to Faith Baptist Church, they, they're encouraged by just the, that welcomeness, that, that sense of being welcomed that they feel. They just feel like people care that they're there and they want them to feel welcomed. So continue to do that. That's good and encouraging. Next, we can foster a culture of prayerfulness by reflecting on the prayers on Sunday morning and with others um, as we listen to the sermon. And so from the beginning of the service, from the opening prayer, the call to invocation to the benediction, we ought to be giving ourselves to every aspect of the service. Be in your seat, be ready to hear the scripture read and to hear the prayer and to sing together. Ask the Spirit to work in your heart a desire for every aspect of the service. Don't think that coming to corporate worship is simply about hearing the word preached. From the call to invocation, the call to worship and the invocation, the reading of the scripture, the prayer, the songs, 
the preached word, the Lord's Supper exhortation, the participation in the Lord's Supper, the singing, the benediction, we should give ourselves fully and attentively to each aspect of the corporate worship service, okay? Lastly, just practically, turn off your phones. Uh, maybe that'll help remove some distractions. I know people, a lot of people use their phones to pull up scripture. They have Bible apps and whatnot, which is just fine. That can be helpful. But if you know that you're prone to uh, double tap, open up the Facebook app or Instagram or Twitter during service, just to see what's going on for a second. It might be better for you to practice self-control and to bring your physical Bible. Put your phone away and flip through the word <laughs> as the word is preached, as we're reading scripture together, uh, as just a means for you to discipline yourself in that way. I don't have loud conversations during the service. Come early, leave late, thank the people who are volunteering during the service, etc. These are just things, very practical things that we can um, do and put into practice almost immediately uh, next Lord's Day service when we're gathered together uh, that can help us to give our thoughts and uh, attention to, to the word. Third, corporate worship is edifying. Corporate worship is an opportunity for us to edify each other. You might be somewhat surprised to discover in scripture that God isn't the only one we address during times of corporate worship. He's the only one who's worshiped, but we're actually addressing one another as well. Paul writes in Ephesians, for example, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Ephesians 5.19. When we sing on Sunday morning or read scripture or pray, we're communicating not only to God, but also to each other. We're informing each other as we pray and sing. Now, why is that important? Because we need to be reminded of so many of the great truths in scripture. Things that we often return to in our times of corporate worship that God created us that he is perfectly just, that we have sinned against him, and that Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. We hear these truths from a sermon. It builds us up and it's edifying, but it helps our hearts to hear them also from the singing voices and engaging faces of our brothers and sisters around us. So let me share a few suggestions, particularly in this area of singing and how we can use our songs to edify one another. Now we can recognize that all songs are teaching something, but some songs teach better than others. So here at FBC, we do desire for our songs to be a few things. We desire for them to be distinctly biblical. We desire for them to be distinctly doctrinal. 
We desire for them to be distinctly Christian, distinctly spiritual, and distinctly doxological. Biblical, doctrinal, Christian, spiritual, and doxological. But again, here are a few suggestions, <clears throat> particularly in the area of singing, and how we can use our songs to edify one another. <clears throat> one, we can meditate on the meaning of the words as we sing and think about not only how those truths apply to us, but how they apply to others in the church. Two, in ways that are natural and comfortable for you and not distracting to others, consider your body language and how that helps encourage others while you sing. Perhaps smiling at certain sections and um, looking around from time to time to uh, engagingly and non-distractingly, <laughs> that can be done, um, encourage others. Three, we can sing aloud so we can hear one another. We want to hear your voices sing. <clears throat> Four, strive to sing as a part of the whole. Even if it's not your musical, uh, maybe, preference or your musical strength in singing, listen to others and how they're singing and just blend your voice with theirs. So we're singing with one voice. Listening to others is a great way to learn, that, to, to learn the songs and to improve on your own singing, right? Five, if you're able and you have one of those voices, sing the parts. The richness and fullness of the music comes out when the different parts are sang. And who knows, you know, as we do sing together, as those different parts are sung, uh, what might encourage others and what standing next to someone who's maybe not as bold and uh, don't feel comfortable singing the parts, how, how it can encourage them, right? So there's an encourager, there's one being encouraged, and we can cross-encourage one another, okay? Fourth, corporate worship offers us a taste of heaven. As we close out, we want to consider that corporate worship offers us a taste of what heaven will be like. Heaven is a place where the full community of God's people will dwell with him forever, praising his name and delighting in his glory. Corporate worship, then, is a snapshot of that experience that we can appreciate in this life as it points to the life to come. The author of Hebrews paints this picture in Hebrews 12 when he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a word better than the blood of Abel. When we come together and worship on the Lord's Day, we catch a glimpse of the glory of that final congregation in heaven. That is encouraging. 
That's when heaven feels most real. And we esteem the things of God as most valuable. And don't you realize that and recognize that when you gather? Don't you feel like, I want to just stay here. <laughs> I'm not as easily tempted here. My, my mind isn't as easily distracted here. I, I, I just feel better when I'm here gathered with the saints. It's just so encouraging. My affections are stirred as I think about God and as I hear the word preached and we sing and we pray together. I, just, I, I don't want to leave here. It's encouraging. <laughs> and we, we need that picture of corporate worship and what it paints for us of heaven. Because despite the brokenness of this world, heaven is our true home. We're pilgrims now, and we're travelers, and we're weary often, and tired, and discouraged, and we just, this, this constant theme of our hearts, Maranatha, 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 come Lord Jesus. But in heaven, there will be perfect unity in Christ. And so the unity we experience while we worship corporately in this life points us forward to that unity. And so we, we get a glimpse of him. We get a glimpse of that time where we will know him on that day perfectly as he is. So let's consider how to stir one another up to good works. Let's, let's consider how we should approach God in worship and let's consider how we can encourage one another as we worship corporately our triune God. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your patience with us when we pray amiss. We thank you for your long-suffering with us when we worship in wrong ways when we offer unauthorized fire. Lord, please cleanse us. Give us right convictions. Make us to repent where we need to repent and to hope in the true and living God to be reminded that Christ worshiped perfectly. Where we failed in our worship, he worshiped rightly, perfectly. And in him, we are counted as righteous. And so, Lord, now in light of what you have done for us, let us worship you rightly, truly. Let us consider how to stir one another up to good works and how to encourage one another in worship. And let us give thought to how to approach our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in corporate worship. And may you be pleased to sanctify us that week by week, month by month, year by year, we are growing in our spirituality and our worship of the true and living God. Sanctify us, Lord, and may you be pleased to glorify yourself in the midst of our weaknesses, and may you sanctify us by your Holy Spirit to be more conformed to the image of Christ so that our worship is more and more biblical. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.